0: This morning I just want to share a few thoughts about um, the role the Holy Spirit plays in shaping us into a people who bear his name in the world. So that might sound like a slightly odd phrase, a people who bear his name, or slightly kind of formal, but it's very much in the Bible. I I started looking, you know, a few years ago, um, sort of was struck by this repeated um, connection to the name of God. In uh, the Old and New Testament, the way that the biblical authors seem to present god 's name <coughs> as almost this thing which is portable, like this thing which can be can reside somewhere, can be with people and with places, um, almost as if it 's an entity of its own and the more I, I looked, the the more I yeah seemed to notice this everywhere. Um, the most obvious example. Um, May or may not work for me. Uh, the most obvious example, anyway, is in Second Chronicles, chapter seven. We all love Chronicles, there, eh? um, <laughs> where God appears to Solomon uh, after the construction of the temple and uh, says to him, "I have chosen and consecrated. Uh, <clears throat> I have chosen and consecrated this house so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time." So this was part of a, an older promise that was made to Solomon's father, David, um, when he spoke through the prophet Samuel, and uh, saying uh, that he, David, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so, because of this promise, um, Jerusalem became there we are. Jerusalem became known as the place where God had put His name. Alright, oh, you'll be my, Lance will be <laughs> thanks Lance. I should just say, pausing, um, Lance and Rob, you know, these guys just do this week after week, and it's not an easy job, it's quite complicated, um, and I just want to make that aware that, that these guys are opening up our church to people who can't be with us, people who are on Zoom, and also making this thing work, so thank you guys, um, we appreciate it, yeah. Okay. So Jerusalem is the place where God's name is. So this promise of a place where God's name will reside harkens way back into the beginnings of scripture. So we even see in Deuteronomy 12, for example, that Moses gave instructions about where proper worship was supposed to take place in the future, but he isn't specific about where. He just says, uh, (laughs) um, he just says, if the If the place where the Lord, your God, chooses to put his name is too far for you, then this is where you should do your proper worship. Um, Oh dear. (coughs) Sorry, Lance, now I've put you on the spot. (laughs) I've got the whole church watching you. When it's going well, the sound guy, the tech people, nobody notices. It's 99% invisible eh? when it's going well, but when it's not. (laughs) So anyway, um, where are we? God, yeah, God God wants his name to, to dwell somewhere. So I, I am going somewhere with this. You, know, you might be thinking, how does this connect to the Holy Spirit? We'll get there. Um, but I just want to linger a little bit on this thing of God's name, the significance of God's name and the way it's presented in Scripture like this. So in Exodus, right in the, right in the middle of uh, the confrontation with Pharaoh and God, God sends Moses to deliver a message to Pharaoh, saying basically, Pharaoh, look, from God, I could have wiped you out at any time. I could have, I, we could have ended this a long time ago. But, um, but the reason I haven't done that is because um, I want to show you my power and to make my name resound through all the earth. So all of the, all of the action in the, in the story of the Exodus is really God saying, I want, I want the whole world to know about my name. And, and we're putting on a big, a big, big show here. Which is cool. Um, in, our, in our modern culture, in our, in our Western culture, I suppose, um, names tend to be primarily used in an aesthetic way. So we, we like the sound of a certain name. Um, it kind of pairs nicely with the surname. Uh, we don't want too much rhyming going on or too much assonance. Um, my mum could have called me Hank, I guess. Hank Rankin. But <laughs> she didn't. She is nice. They were merciful. But... Uh, You know, in the ancient world, you know, if Hank was the right name, that was the name. Uh, Because the name really revealed the characteristic of a person. It it also revealed something of the key events of their life. Um, The things which had inscribed themselves on that person became their name. And that's why you can see a lot in the Old Testament, people's names changed after sort of significant events. So Naomi, when she returned to Israel after um, becoming a widow, she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means... um, bitter because of all of their losses or Jacob you know the deceiver um, has his name changed to Israel the one who struggles with God or when Moses is a shepherd and he sees the the burning bush and hears a voice coming from it you know one of his earliest questions is what what's your name what should I call you um, and he's not so much asking like you know what's yeah he's not so much asking for a designation he's saying what kind of God are you what kind of thing are you What's your character? What do you like? So in the ancient world, naming was about character. Um, so I think you know, for us, maybe, like I said, that's not such a strong thing in our culture. But on the other hand, it's not totally absent. So I don't know uh, how, how many of you are familiar with The Crucible. It's a play by Arthur Miller some of you are getting triggered right now thinking back to high school English um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, some of you have got no idea what it is anyway so let me tell you um, it's a really amazing play it's a story set uh, against the backdrop of the Salem Witch Trials in 1692 and spoilers, sorry spoiler alerts come in um, the, the town becomes gripped with hysteria um, after these this group of young girls are caught dancing in the woods and In order to avoid punishment, they say, um, well, it was all these other women that that possessed us and that they're witches. And so they accuse these other women in the village of being witches in order to shift the blame away from themselves. And so the accusations in this climate just take off like wildfire. And um, they become like a way of settling scores and personal vendettas and fear grips the whole town um, in this kind of hysteria. And the whole justice system ends up becoming completely distorted as innocent people are are wrongly accused and convicted. Um, And nobody ends up being brave enough to speak the truth because anyone who speaks out against it gets labeled a witch. So it's a bad situation. And um, towards the end of the play, the the protagonist, this John Proctor, has been falsely accused of being party to this stuff to witchcraft, and he's in jail waiting execution. He won't confess to it because he knows that he has not been involved in it at all. Um, but the the judge and the lawyers and the accusers all come to him and say, look, if you just confess, then we'll, we'll make it all go away. You don't need to go to the gallows. All you need to do is say that you've been involved in this, and we'll make it all go away. So they eventually wear him down to the point where he confesses to this crime which he hasn't committed but then the judge says great now I just need you to put your name on this piece of paper so we can put this up in the village square and at this point Proctor just explodes in in rage um, this exasperated rage and he refuses to sign his name even though he's already confessed and so the judge asks him you know what's the big deal you've already confessed you know just it's just a name just write your name down And Proctor replies, you know, he won't do it because, he says, because it's my name. Because I am not, uh, because I cannot have another in my life. Because I lie and sign myself to lies. Because I am not worthy, uh, I'm not worth the dust on the feet of them that hang. How may I live without my name? I've given you my soul. Leave me my name. And so in the end, Proctor realises that he can't bring himself to do this thing. He can't bring himself to put his name on a piece of paper, and instead he chooses to die with his goodness intact. So I think we can all resonate with something in that, that even though we might not have that ancient conception of a name, we understand that there's something about a name which is sacred. How can I live without my name? So going back to, to God's promise to place his name in Jerusalem, he also promises to remove his name if, if the people, if the king and the people will misrepresent his name. He says, I will not, you know, I'll, I'll take my name away from this temple and this temple will become a proverb. It will become a byword amongst the nations um, for what happens when you misuse the name of God. So, um, and this is exactly what happens in Israel's story. So that's why so much of the Old Testament prophetic literature is um, concerned with calling out the king and calling out the rulers of Israel for misrepresenting God's name, misrepresenting his character in the world. And then as it says in, um, in Jeremiah, uh, has this house, this is God speaking, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight. I too am watching, says the Lord. And Isaiah also located the cause of Israel's exile, or slide towards exile, with the abuse of God's name. And and he says, you know, um, for my own sake, this is God speaking again, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for why should my name be profaned? Um, So the temple was eventually destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians. And it, Ezekiel um, saw this as just a just act of, of God refusing to allow his name to be tarnished anymore, um, for his character to be misrepresented like that. And he, he says, But I acted for the sake of my name, so that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. That's brought Israel out. So what we see in all of this is that God really cares about his name. It's really important to him, like John Proctor. Um, he's not going to let his name go. And it's not because he's an egomaniac. It's not because he's an angry God or anything like that. But because uh, his name represents who he is to the world. His, his name is his character. It's his reputation. And um, he, he gives it to his people to look after. And in the book of, of Numbers, chapter 6, verse 22, there's this famous priestly blessing which we probably all know really well now because of that song Um, but it goes the Lord you know the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace Um, so this is something that that the Lord spoke to Moses about the telling the priest to to pray this blessing over the people but the very next line um, this is the reason it says So they shall put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. So this blessing is about inscribing the name of God on the people. And as my, you know, as my, I I don't like to use my kids in all sermon illustrations, but I'm doing that, aren't I? Um, As my kids have started to grow up, it's been kind of funny watching them reflect my, quirks and my facial expressions back to me. I see them doing things like Francis is always, you know, talking with his his eyebrows going up and down like this, and like, ah, that's what I do. (laughs) Just the way we we start to mirror each other as as our faces spend more time looking at each other. Um, You know, the more time we look at each other, we start to develop this shared familial likeness, this, you know, this family traits and this sense of kinship. It's through these habitual practices of just seeing each other across the table, and I think God works similarly with us. You know, the more we the more we turn our face to Him, the more we see His face turned to us. We begin to start taking on the likeness, this family likeness, and we experience this, you know, in our devotional life and in our worship as we as we open ourselves up to God and say, "Here I am. You know where I am. I've got no secrets that I can hide from you." We, we open ourselves up to God and his face shines on us. And Paul, you know, describes this as the kind of new covenant worship. He says, um, in the next slide, he says, We all, us all, who with, with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So there's a picture of, of New Covenant worship. Um, so you may still be wondering, <laughs> after all of this, what's this got to do with the, the Holy Spirit? What's the connection between the name of God and the Holy Spirit? Well, it turns out the two, the two are very deeply entwined. That when, when, the, when the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, um, and when the Spirit was poured out on the crowd at Samaria, when it was poured out at Cornelius' house, every time the Spirit is poured out... Um, People become incorporated into God's family. They become the people of God. They get welcomed into the people of God by the Spirit. And they're not just any people. They're, they're the people in whom God's personal empowering presence lives. They're the, they're the people who carry God's name. And the people who carry God's character in the world. And this is the work of the Spirit. It's, it's the Spirit which, which puts the name of God in us. It's the spirit which inscribes his name on us when he's poured out on us. That's why Paul understood his vocation as uh, bringing about the obedience of the faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, of God's name. This is how Paul understood it. My job is to bring about obedience for the sake of God's name. Now, you might be getting sick of me um, repeating myself. I'm repeat this point i think a lot um but salvation in the new testament um in new testament terms is a collective experience it's a it's a collective experience it's to get saved means to be joined to the people of god by the spirit it doesn't negate the individual experience it doesn't negate the need for a personal relationship with god at all but salvation is collective it's, it happens in group terms another way of putting it is that there's no such thing as a churchless christianity it just doesn't exist we belong to the people of god we're part of a collective another repeated phrase we use a lot around here is the way in is the way on so meaning that if getting saved is by this gr- process of being grafted into the people of god by the spirit then being saved means living and living as the people of God by the Spirit. The way in is the way on. It's the Spirit who brings us into the people of God, and it's the Spirit who enables us to become the people of God or to be the people of God. So what, what might this look like? This is a question I have. is What might this look like for us, like us here in this room, in this church, to live as God's people, to, to bear his name? Because we we know what it looks like uh, when God's people misrepresent his name to the world. When God's people distort his name um, by suggesting that he's on the side of this or that when he's not. Um, When when the people of God use his name to endorse injustice. Um, We know that God won't allow that to happen for very long. God won't allow his name to be misrepresented like that. He's too protective of it. So again, we we might do well to just ponder what it's like, uh, what what it would look like for us as a people to truly represent God's name in the world, to truly represent God's name in this city. And I guess for many people, you know, myself included, um, this question sometimes gets approached in a bit of a straightforward and overly simplistic way. Um, It's like, well, we've got the Bible it tells us what to do, there's the commands, there's the instructions, um, we just need to do what it says, um, just follow the commands, um, so, you know, uh, we make a, we end up making a list of things, like, well, it says, you know, be generous, and be kind, and don't lie, and don't steal, and, um, don't lust and um, love your enemies. Or we'll, we'll put that one at the bottom of the list, maybe, when, when we get to it. Um, you know, regard others as better than yourself. We we create this big long list, like a to-do list, of things that we need to do. And then, in a sense, we get a bit overwhelmed with it. It's like I don't even know how to do that. That's too much. I don't I don't know how to how to live that way. So we synthesize it down to like, well, be good. <laughs> Just being part of the people of God is about being good and not being bad, um, not doing bad things, doing good things. Um, and this, this produces sort of an, uh, an ethic, and a, 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 an approach to life, which is, on the one hand, way too easy, and on the other hand, way too hard. Um, it's too easy because it just reduces Christian life and the Christian ethics down to a code of conduct, um, which we essentially begin to evaluate against our culture. When we talk about what being good is and what being bad is, it becomes quite cultural and what's acceptable. And on the other hand, it's too hard to live this way because, um, yeah, uh, when we think of the New Testament, we think about being the people of God as a a set of rules which we have to keep. um, Like, we find it pretty hard to mandate loving the unlovely or the unlovable. Um, How do you make yourself not seek vengeance? How do you make yourself prefer one another's over yourself these are not things that you can just conjure up by gritting your teeth and trying harder um so it's not a to-do list and when we do that i think we trivialize the the commands of the new testament as sort of mere ideals we we tend to think well they're so impossible that we're mar- we're never actually ever going to do it so let's why bother you know um it's too hard so Let's give up now. Um, I'm, you know, and, and I think you know God loves forgiving, but I think that 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 there is this imperative to, like I say, to 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 be the people of God, to carry His name. Um, this attitude, this sort of, was was the attitude of Israel at the time when it was like, well, we're just going to reduce Torah down to the simple things we can keep. It didn't produce life. Um, so the Old Testament's really clear that, that, that God's intent with His commandments was for His name and his character to be revealed. So His people were supposed to be these have the hallmarks of God's character. Um, and they weren't just a list of dead commands. they were things which were celebrated, um, Psalm 119, Psalm 19. Both of these offer really beautiful reflections on the glory and the goodness of God's commandments. Because I think sometimes we can, again, think all oh, the Old Testament laws are just bad, and then we've got Jesus who saved us from all that stuff. But actually, the, the Torah was always meant to point to the, the rich, full, flourishing life. Um, so Paul speaks about the commandments in the same way. You know, he, he calls the commandments holy and just and good. He doesn't attempt to revoke the words of God, and neither did Jesus. Um, Jesus, who said that he had not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it, he also said, "Whoever breaks one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven." So it's um, it isn't that the commandments that are it's not the commandments that are broken. It's not the instructions that are broken. It's not God's words that are broken. It's not God's ways that are broken. It's us. We're, we're the ones who are broken. We're the ones who don't have it to the ability to do this. We can't just grit our teeth and become the people of God like this. But the good news is, we haven't been left alone. We're not left alone to figure this out, to just try to, you know, muster up the courage to be better people. We've been incorporated as a new people. Um, but unlike those who lived prior to Pentecost, we have God's empowering presence at work within us. God is God's Spirit has been poured out, so it's God's Spirit which enables us to live the ethical life. It's God's spirit which allows us to reflect his character into the world. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both anticipated this. Both of them used the same metaphor, the same image of uh, a heart or a kind of heart transplant that needed to happen to describe the way that God's spirit would one day break into history and make a new covenant with his people. So the way Jeremiah talked about it was, of God putting a new law into Israel's minds and hearts. He said, you know, I'll put my law in them and write it on their hearts. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. Because, yeah, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Um, Whereas Ezekiel used the exact same picture, but a slightly different emphasis and perhaps an even deeper transformation, writing, you know, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations which, to which you came. I will sanctify my great name. Um, so again, this is God's, you know, God's intention, and this is how he will do it. Um, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. So these two these two images, um, I think, are the essence of Life in the Spirit, what life in the Spirit means. And it's not merely individualized ethics. It's not just um, me and my relationship with God type ethic, but a new collective identity which, which these prophets were speaking of. We collectively, by the power of the Spirit, carry God's name. So... And it makes sense, you know. Almost every commandment in the New Testament given is in the second person plural. It's you all. It's not you individually. It's to every commandment is to you, meaning all of you. Um, so the, the commandments are upheld by us, by we, rather than by individual individual me. Um, yeah. So I think these two images were constantly in view for Paul. I think that they were constantly in view and informing his um, understanding of the gospel. Paul was a self-confessed uh, religious zealot. Um, in his former life as a Pharisee, he said, nobody has a claim on religiosity greater than me. I have done it all. I've been there. Um, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, he's, He lists his qualifications. But then he says, "You know, in all of his heroic efforts of Torah observance, none of it really mattered. In, in the comparison to knowing Jesus face to face, and this is this is still the same life life in company with the triune God as the people of God <laughs> a lot of words there, huh? so yeah, in a way, I, I feel like I have said a lot and maybe said a lot to say something pretty simple, I guess um, a pretty simple message really, in that um, yeah, living, living righteous lives that reflect God's character in the world is not something that um, can properly function at an individual level. It's something we all need each other to do. Um, and it's not just a matter of, yeah, of gritting our teeth and trying our very best to be good. And yet at the same time, it's not something that's idealistic. It's not utopian. It's actually not something which is like we can palm off and say, well, you know, in heaven I'll be a good person. It's something that, that we're called into now. Because sometimes, you know, it's easy to explain it away. <laughs> it's just uh, impractical. But I think it's a flawed way of thinking. So the commandments are there. They're um, not there for us to win favor with God. They don't make us, they don't make God love us anymore. They don't earn our salvation. We can't earn our salvation. It's a gift. The commandments are just reflections of who God is. And the more we see his face, the more we allow his face to shine upon us, all of us, as a people, the more we open ourselves up to him, the more we just begin to reflect his character and represent his name. Which is nice. Nice and kind of easy, isn't it? It's like, hey, that's all we really need to do. We just need to keep learning and open up to God together. <clears throat> now, um, yeah, Jesus... Jesus kind of gave us a heads up, though, about what this would look like. He said, you'll be hated by all because of my name. <laughs> so I've got really good news for this morning. Um, you'll be hated by all because of my name. That's what Jesus said. Um, and he, he spoke of Paul when, when he was calling Paul. He spoke of Paul as an instrument to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. So Paul's job was to bring God's name before kings in Israel, and he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, <laughs> which again is, is good news. Um, there's this thing of, um, yeah, um, <clears throat> even when he spoke in the book of Revelation to the church in Ephesus, Jesus writes to them and says, I know that you're enduring and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. So, so being a people who carry the name of God also is being trouble in the world. Um, sometimes it's being trouble in the world. Yeah, <laughs> um, Paul puts it really well in 2 Corinthians 15 there, yeah. um, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Same aroma, but people interpret it pretty differently. Um, But our job's not to worry about any of that. Our job is to be a people who carry his name. Our job is to keep in step with the Spirit and allow him to form us into a living picture of Christ.